Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Central America's largest country is struggling with high poverty, crime, and a weakening democracy. So why do the leading candidates in Guatemala's presidential election all sound pretty similar? There are two key dates in Guatemala to understand what's going on. First, 1986, the innovation of democracy, as we call it, and then 1996, the signing of the peace accords. What happened there? The elites, the governing or the ruling elites, I'm talking about political, economical, military elites, they granted for themselves the management of the system. It's very comfortable, it's very unique, and it's very sophisticated. Looking at Guatemala from the outside, you'd expect this June's election to be a change election in line with so many others we've recently seen throughout Latin America. After all, the incumbent president, Alejandro Giamate, has an approval rating in the 20s. And while economic indicators like GDP look good and foreign investors are generally content, that growth has done little to improve some of the Western Hemisphere's highest percentages of malnutrition and poverty. Crime and drug-related violence continue to drive thousands of people to leave the country, often for the United States. Guatemala's democracy is also in clear decline, as successive governments have concentrated power, jailed journalists, and forced independent prosecutors and judges into exile. And yet, if you look at the leading candidates for president in this election, they look and sound a lot like the current leader. Members of the Guatemala City elite, generally conservative, who represent, broadly speaking, a continuation of the status quo. There is no viable candidate on the left, no one promising a major shakeup. What explains this? Where is Guatemala's politics and economy heading? How concerned should the international community be about further democratic decline? Our guest on the AQ podcast is Claudia Mendez Arriaza, who has been an investigative reporter in Guatemala for 20 years. She currently works with Concriterio. Claudia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here, Brian, and thanks for all the the team who's working behind this podcast. All right. So tell me, Claudia, as we approach this June 25th election, what is the number one issue for voters in Guatemala? There are two questions that can reveal what it's in their mind. When you ask them, what is the number one problem In Guatemala, they always say corruption, crime. Third in the list is economy. But when you ask them what is your number one worry in your life, it's economy, employment, and then after that is crime, security. So those are two levels to answer that question. So let's talk about the economy, because from a macroeconomic standpoint, Guatemala doesn't look that bad. It's the largest economy in Central America, of course. It's grown at a steady pace of about 3.5% over the last decade. It's expected to grow 3.2% in 2023. That's about triple the Latin American average for some context. However, and just proof that these numbers don't tell the whole story, poverty and inequality rates in Guatemala are among the highest in all of Latin America and the Caribbean. So my question for you is, what does the economy feel like on the ground? 
just yesterday, Standard & Poor's published a new score for Guatemala, which qualifies the economy in this country like stable. Of course, that we expect to attract investments and um, that these numbers, the macro numbers and these qualifications do good for us. But when you talk about the economy, you need to talk about inequality. And when you go deep into the numbers of inequality in Guatemala, then you get to see that those macro numbers, just the stability, the growth, it's only for a very, very reduced number or percentage of people in this country. I was looking at the last survey, the national survey. It's an official number of conditions of living in Guatemala. And the results of that survey in 2015 were that half of the population of Guatemala are living in poverty. That's a really real number. It's an official number. And it reveals that we can be, you know, making a party and celebrating that we're doing good in macroeconomics, that we're getting good scores. But the reality here is totally different. It's malnutrition. I think it's our biggest challenge. Half of the children of Guatemala are living with chronic malnutrition. So that's to tell you what's in the ground. Yeah, and certainly a, a rural indigenous population that has been left out of the modern economy and that maybe doesn't show up in these numbers. And that's why we see unhappiness in polls. That's why one reason why we see migration to the United States and so on. So thank you for providing a, a full picture on that. Let's move on to another topic you mentioned, which is crime and security. There has been a rise in homicide in recent years. Insight Crime recently noted that according to government data, there were 3,000 homicides registered in Guatemala last year, almost a 6% rise compared to the previous year. Does that feel any different to people there on the ground? Do people feel like it's getting worse? Or is it unfortunately one of these places where people are just accustomed to a certain level of violence and it feels more or less the same? It feels more or less the same because we are used to violence. Let me tell you something about a figure that it's not as popular as the homicides rate. It's the extortion rate. One of two Guatemalans have been victims of extortion. So it's not a homicide, but it's a crime that is going on every day and everywhere. So we've talked about the economy, we've talked about security, and now I want to talk about the other big issue that you mentioned being on voters' minds, which is corruption. And Guatemala has had a dramatic story on this subject over the last 10 years that I have followed closely. There was a period between 2015 and 2018 when there was seemingly a crackdown on corruption led by the CICIG, the UN anti-corruption body that sent an ex-president to jail among other figures. And then there was a reversal of that progress starting around 2018, 2019, and then continuing under the current president, Alejandro Giamate. Where are we now? And how much is the electorate concerned about this as they go to vote in June? When you ask the people, what is the 
problem, the number one problem of this government, six or maybe seven out of 10 Guatemalans will respond. It is corruption. I believe we're living in the end of a cycle. There was a time in which this commission, International Commission, started working here and we were getting the sense of very strong prosecutor's office that will prosecute anyone, no matter who you are. If you're the president of the country or if you're the president of one of the top companies in the country, there was a time in which that happened. And what we're living right now, there's the end of that mood of prosecuting corruption, big corruption. The general prosecutor right now, she has been six years in the prosecutor's office and you you cannot count more than five or more than four cases of big corruption under her mandate. You cannot do that. Well, and it's a government that has taken active steps to persecute those who tried to prosecute corruption in recent years. Uh, many have gone into exile as a result of this. In part, the U.S. government has sanctioned some Guatemalan individuals who are caught up in this corruption. So it's a pretty messy situation. Yes, I was telling you on the one hand, if you try to count the number of corruption cases, big corruption cases under this mandate, I mean, it's three. You can mention three or maybe two. But in the other hand, you need more than one hand to count the cases against the prosecutors that one day prosecuted big corruption in Guatemala. I was recently in Washington, D.C., and I was totally shocked when the, an officer who is in charge of a, an important program that will, you know, attend judiciary officials who are in exile, she told me that she counted 30 judicial officials in exile in the United States in the last five years. I'm talking only about the U.S., But let me ask you a difficult question. Do most ordinary Guatemalans care? No, they don't care. Help me understand the contradiction there. Because on the one hand, you've said that corruption appears in polls sometimes as the number one issue. And that there's disappointment with the Jamate government and the overall political establishment as a result. But I'm not hearing like a giant anti-establishment surge coming from the Guatemalan public in a way that we've seen in some other countries in the region. Tough question. But going back to our past, I grew up during the war in Guatemala. There was a four decades war here in this country. And I was too young to understand what was going on. But now when I read and understand the history of that that time in my country, I find, you know, a parallelism with what is going on right now. There were massacres going on during the war in the northern lands of Guatemala. And at the same time, you will come to the city, go to Club Guatemala, and see the quinceañeras, the sweet 15 girls, celebrating their birthday. Now, let's come back to the 21st century, to 2023. You see Alejandro Yamate dominating every power in the system. You see Yamate dominating the courts. You see Yamate dominating the Congress. You see Yamate expulsing or bringing to prison journalists and sending into exile 
prosecutors and independent judges. And every day I get invitations, a new mall is opening next week, let's go. And if I go, it's a party going on there. So what I believe is that this system has, this system was designed to maintain the stability in certain classes who won't care about what's going on beyond their walls. And that's not just in the upper classes, from what I'm hearing, but perhaps in other sections of society as well, where they're not certainly not satisfied with everything in their lives, but they don't see any possibility for change. And so they end up voting for candidates in elections who resemble the previous one. Exactly, exactly. And if you go and try to understand what's going on in other classes, they are too busy trying to survive. Yeah, it's just interesting to me as someone who you know, follows Latin America as a whole, it sounds like a status quo that, <laughs> frankly, a lot of other politicians and other countries in the region would love to have, right? Kind of a closed world where people are content enough. But that's not what we see if we look around the rest of the region, particularly in South America, where I certainly follow much more closely. What is it that's unique about Guatemala, I suppose? I mean, what has allowed, according to what you're saying here, for this status quo to endure? There are two key dates in Guatemala to understand what's going on. First, 1986, the inauguration of democracy, as we call it, and then 1996, the signing of the peace accords. What happened there? The elites, the governing or the ruling elites, I'm talking about political, economical, military elites, they granted for themselves the management of the system. And that's the reason for it. It's very comfortable, it's very unique, and it's very sophisticated as well. Another thing that they've done in recent elections, and this it's true in this election as well, is bar candidates who might upset the status quo from running. And who bars the candidates that they don't want? Who bars you the entrance to the club, to the disco? You know, the manager. That's what I'm telling you. It's very sophisticated to understand it, but they granted for themselves the management, you know, of all this system. Why we have Telma Cabrera out of this election? Why we have Roberto Arzu out of this election? Why we have some majors? Why we have some deputies that are left behind the election? Because the management has said to the doorman, I mean, these are allowed to come to the party, but please keep out this. And just to explain to our audience who might not follow Guatemala, Thelma Cabrera, who you mentioned, she's a very prominent indigenous female farm worker leader, and she was banned from running in this year's presidential election after the country's electoral tribunal refused to allow her to register her candidacy. It's not clear that she would have won otherwise. Support was fragmented, but she did have some support in Guatemala's grassroots movements. So this, I suppose, what I'm hearing from you is this is indicative of the kind of thing that the the system and, and a certain elite in Guatemala has done over the years to protect the status quo. And so all of this, Claudia, has been to set up why, as we go into this June election, the front runner in this race 
is someone who looks a lot like the current status quo. And I'm talking about Zuri Rios. She is leading in most polls. And as I mentioned, you profiled her recently for America's Quarterly. She is the daughter of the deceased general and former president, Efrain Rios Montt, who seized power in a coup in 1982 and oversaw one of the most brutal periods of Guatemalan history. He was convicted of ordering acts of genocide as president before being absolved closer to his death a couple of years ago. Tell us about Zuri Rios, how she is similar and different from her father. And I suppose you could also tell us how she is similar and different from Jamate, because I have to tell you, looking from the outside in, they look pretty similar. Well, actually, they have governed the last four years together. I mean, the alliance in the Congress of her party and the official party right now, they have ruled the country for the past four years. They act similar. They belong to the same alliance. So they are exactly the same. How is she different from from her father? They have similarities, but um, the times are different. Zuri has never explicitly distanced herself from her father's alleged crimes. And she said in 2019, after his death, that he was a role model who she said taught her, quote, the values of believing in God, fighting for principles, and being resilient. So this is not someone who has, by any means, stepped away from her father's legacy. You cannot ask a daughter to step aside from her father. And he is present, even though she doesn't mention him all the time. But look, who is she referring to openly? She is referring to Najib Bukele. Well, and you're referring, of course, to the president of El Salvador, who has implemented this very hard line crackdown that has been effective in reducing homicides, but at the cost of human rights and rule of law. The last episode of our podcast looked at this wave of imitators of Bukele around Latin America, and it's fair to say that Zuri Rios is in that mold, correct? Exactly. So if we are trying to find who the role model is right now, maybe Efraín Rios Montt is way too back in the past, but second, Najib Bukele is too popular in the region. I mean, if Najib Bukele will run here in Guatemala, I bet you he will be number one in the polls. And not with 20%, Brian, not with 20% of the intention of the vote. Najib Bukele will have 80% of the intention of the vote. That is the character of every single candidate in Guatemala right now in this election. If you want me to tell you one picture that truly describes the election season in Guatemala, none of the leading candidates sums more than 25% of the intention of vote. That tells you what this system is about. Very weak presidents that gather after the first round of votes and they govern together because they know that they are too weak to govern by themselves. So to just stick with Zuri Rios for a little while longer, this is someone who has emphasized her faith. She's popular among Guatemala's evangelical Christian community, which, by the way, is one of Latin America's largest. It's about 40 percent, possibly more of the population. At the same time, 
It's interesting. Zuri Rios has done some socially progressive work in Congress in favor of women, in favor of LGBT groups that have earned her some plaudits from legislators on the left, one of whom you quoted in the profile you wrote about her. So she seems to defy some molds. But at the end of the day, is it fair to say this would be a status quo leader when it comes to the general pillars of the Guatemalan power structure? Especially in these times, because I I see her, she's very strong with evangelicals, but she's very strong with the Opus Dei too. I'm trying to see how would she stand for the laws and the public policies that she pushed as a congresswoman back in early in this century. And there's another question that I ask myself in these days. See, Zuri comes from this party that believes that the state should be stronger. But now Zuri, in this alliance, is tying and making alliances with parties, with the economical elite that doesn't believe in that, that they try to believe that the state should be more smaller, that shouldn't control activities. How would she, you know, stand by that ideology in which she grew? Well, and of course, that's amid a reality where Guatemala, in percentage terms, the Guatemalan state is one of the most meager, resource-starved states of any country in Latin America. I mean, it's smaller than Mexico, smaller than Chile, smaller than Peru. So it's already a very small state. Let's talk about some of the other candidates. Can you tell me a little bit about Sandra Torres, who she is and how where, where she stands in this race? Sandra Torres seems to be second in the line, but there are some polls that are revealing right now that she's not in the second, maybe in the third or fourth place. She's the former first lady, but she governed during the UNE administration, that it's 2008 to 2012. She's very famous. She was very famous and controversial too because she ran two uh, social programs. I would say that the largest social programs in the country based in Lula's, Lula's from Brazil, social programs. Of course, uh, the status quo in Guatemala didn't like much to have social programs that will give money to women for bringing children to school. And of course, she committed the vice. She fell in the temptation of promoting her own image through the social programs. Back now, 2023, of course, she was one of the prominent politicians accused by CC. The way she funded her political party was unorthodox, not following all the, the transparency rules. But she got away with it. I mean, in this pact of impunity, she got away with it. And now she's running as a candidate again. I think that the problem with Sandra Torres It's the same problem with old candidates. I mean, they barely reached the 22 points of intention of vote. But the problem of her is that she, as the other candidates, has a very low acceptance, but she has the highest rejection. Can you tell us a little bit as we get to the end here about some of the other candidates worth keeping an eye on? And is there anyone (laughs) 
I'm going to ask this. I'm laughing as I ask this because is there anyone who is fundamentally different and who would mark a change from the overall status quo who is still allowed to be a candidate in this race and has a chance of winning? There are candidates that come from political parties that are the smallest. You will find differences there, but they are too small to compete with the largest parties. And I believe that if you want to have a candidate that really defies the ruling system, it won't be allowed. Or he or she won't speak openly about defying the system. Jimmy Morales, former president, was an outsider. And the talk of the town here right now is, will we have another surprise like Jimmy Morales in 2016? He too, even though he was a professional comedian coming supposedly from outside politics, ended up being very much a status quo figure. Yeah. He was like kidnapped by the system. And even though that he came out of the system, he became the system and he secured that system. So Guatemala is like this jungle. Yeah. All animals are, you know, speaking the same language and they are allowed to be there. When someone speaks a different language and defies, the king is kicked out of the jungle. And then you will have someone who maybe is speaking very, very softly. But when he raises the voice, maybe he'll get to the top. But once he's in the top, he'll become part of the system. As I was telling you, why is happening this in Guatemala? Let's go back to 1986 again. In 1996, the elites granted for themselves the management of the system. So as we get to the end here and look for a takeaway... It sounds to me, based on what you're saying, that stability in Guatemala will continue, almost independent of what happens in this race, that you'll have macroeconomic indicators that look pretty stable and look pretty good, and that therefore mean for many foreign investors and for others that it continues to be a pretty good place to do business. It sounds to me also like you have a demand for a Bukele-like crackdown on security and that Guatemala might start to resemble El Salvador a little more on that front, but that you're unlikely to see any sort of paradigm shift that might address this deterioration of democracy that we've seen over the last couple of years and that might make life better for the majority of Guatemalans, particularly those who are in rural areas, who are indigenous, who continue to emigrate in search of a better life because nothing ever really seems to substantially improve for them. Is that where we've landed here today? That is where we landed in the option of a change. For now, I can only see it in the way of a disruption. Disruption, that is the only way to change this. It is not going to come really, really slow, but it's going to disrupt. And then we're going to see what happens. Where is hope? Because I always like to, to talk about, uh, you know, where's hope, where I see some changes. And I became a reporter in 1998. I was covering the assassination of this prominent human rights uh, leading voice, uh, a bishop. And I remember that I, there was this, pessimistic air 
But things were happening there, and the things that were happening there led to a CC, for example, to a very strong prosecutor's office. And I think things are going on here too. In the middle of this, I see, for example, the organization of indigenous movements that I have not seen before. They are organized. There was one demonstration, which was a really huge demonstration in the country, but not in the cities, outside the cities. And that became because the, the indigenous movements called themselves from north to south, from east to west. And they gathered together and they coordinated this big demonstration back in 2021. I think there's hope there. There's a social organization too with young students. And maybe we will see something, something really good coming out of there. The, the, there's hope there, but it takes time. Well, and it's the kind of disruption that we've seen in so many other countries over the years. And you really do ask yourself why Guatemala has so far been exempt. But I, I guess we've explored some of those reasons today and we'll see what the future brings. Claudia, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Luisa Franco and edited in partnership with Human Group Media. <laughs>